0: we'd spent the weekend going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. It had been on our mind and we couldn't sleep.
1: Welcome to Rethink Moments, the show that explores culturally significant ideas and events that in some way changed how we think and rethinks how these moments changed us. What went right, what went wrong, and what was learned. I'm Rachel Botsman.
0: I think it was a Monday morning or something like maybe 10 a.m. or I don't quite exactly remember.
1: This is Jason Freed, co-founder and CEO of software company Basecamp and best-selling author of multiple books about workplace culture, including Remote and Rework.
0: We've always seen our business as one big, long experiment in independence. We want to live up to our obligation to be independent and to make decisions that we think are right as business owners, for better or for worse.
1: In April of 2021, Jason and his business partner, David, decided to write a memo that would announce some big changes at BaseCap.
0: Recently, we've made some internal company changes, which, taken in total, collectively feel like a full version change. It deserves an announcement. In the product world... And so we wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and, wrote and revised and revised and revised
1: societal and political discussions would be banned from Basecamp's internal chat forums.
0: We've become a bit too precious with decision-making over the last few years, either by wallowing in indecisiveness or worrying ourselves into overthinking things. taking on. And staff
1: benefits such as fitness and wellness allowances would come to an end.
0: Regardless of what the outcome was going to be, the decision had been made. And we had contemplated the worst that could happen here is that the company ends. Like that could happen. It's time to get back to making calls, explaining why once and moving on.
1: Today on Rethink Moments, one year on from the explosive memo that drove a third of Basecamp's employees to resign.
0: There's no pleasing everyone. You can't. There are too many unique perspectives, experiences and individuals. You press the button and the decision is made.
1: What happens when an organization is plunged into a serious trust crisis? As a leader, how do you personally deal with the heat and the controversy? And can reputations and relationships be repaired?
0: I think we knew it would be controversial, but we were comfortable being controversial.
1: Stay with us. Sometimes we learn more about what we want from our workplace cultures by experiencing the things we don't want to be a part of. Things like late night emails, gossiping about colleagues. These can be the cues and signals that inform what we truly value about work. For Jason Freed, his journey to starting and running Basecamp began by understanding the importance of a trusting culture.
0: One of my early jobs when I was in... High school? I'm not sure. I was 15. I worked at a shoe store and my manager was fantastic because he trusted me and, and the other people that, that worked with us. We were young kids, but he really trusted us to make the right decisions. And, and he, he didn't think that we were bad at our jobs. He thought we were good at our jobs. And I remember feeling a degree of freedom and trust that helped me really, I think, do well. Meanwhile, the owner of the store didn't trust anybody. It was a, a family-owned husband and wife team, and they just didn't trust anyone who worked for them they thought everyone was stealing from them they thought everyone was terrible and i felt shielded by my manager he was sort of protecting me and and my colleagues from that if i ever ran a business i wanted to be more like greg who was my manager and less like the owners of the store and i had a few other examples of that in my life early on where i would work for somebody and i'd realize that this thing about them is something i wouldn't want to do, or I would want to do if I was in their position. And I, I didn't know it at the time, but I was building this sort of matrix of the kind of place I would want to work at. And the thing is, when you start your own business, you're basically creating your own job. That's the first thing you're actually doing. And so you want to create a place that you'd want to work at. And, um, I think that all these little influences over, over the years had a big influence on me to figure out like what kind of organization I'd want to work at and what kind of company would I want to create.
1: So the the manager, let's start with the manager, that feeling of trust, which is something I'm very passionate about. How did that play out? Like, How did you know, even as a teenager, that he trusted you?
0: That's a great question. My my sense of it was that he didn't look over my shoulder. He wasn't monitoring me. He wasn't stepping in when I was talking to a customer. He wasn't watching from afar. He just trusted me that I could do my job, that I knew my stuff and I could do my work. Hmm. And it was, it was his hands-off nature that made me feel like, well, if someone's not going to be watching me, they're not worried about me, they probably assume I can do pretty well. And I think I've taken that approach in my sort of management style and sense, which is I'm, I'm pretty hands-off. I, I hire people who I think are really good at their job and I sort of let them do the job.
1: When we really trust people, we don't need to always know what they're up to. We can give people real autonomy and can get out the way. Whereas the most powerful signs of distrust are often control and micromanagement, needing to know what someone is doing all the time, constantly checking in. That's why I describe trust as having a confident relationship with the unknown.
0: But what was interesting was that the owners were always sort of, whenever they were in the store, they were always watching very carefully and very closely. And it made me very nervous like I'm going to mess up. It's almost like they want you to mess up by putting the pressure on you to mess up. So I just remembered feeling that hands-off was more trust and two hands-on was distrust. Hmm. And I think that sort of set was set in stone for me pretty early on.
1: Trust is both the foundation and the result of a strong culture. It provides people with a sense of belonging and a feeling of psychological safety it creates an inclusive team environment where there's a higher tolerance for disagreement and uncertainty. But at Basecamp, there were warning signs that Trust was seriously wobbling way before Jason pressed send on his memo last April. There's an interesting article that digs into this story in much greater detail, and you can find a link in the description for this episode.
0: I felt like it wasn't so fun at work, Anymore, There was a lot of tension. There was a lot of sort of personal lack of humanity in a variety of ways. There was uh, people not trusting each other, not giving each other the benefit of the doubt. It hadn't been fun for a while because of that. And eventually things sort of boiled over there. But it had been a a slow boil for, for a few years, I think.
1: And how do you think that was showing up in your leadership, not enjoying the work and the team?
0: I think everyone was a bit afraid of each other. I think there was a lack of candor and honesty and conversation because people were afraid of what someone might think of them. I'd heard from a number of people who were afraid to speak up or afraid to not to speak up. It's like they didn't know what they could and couldn't do anymore. And I felt the same way. You know, I didn't really know what to do anymore in many ways, And with is unusual for us because we've always been a very open company. We've always spoken very transparently publicly about things that are going on in the company. We've always shared our point of view very broadly and widely. That was how we sort of made our name. And, and all of a sudden internally we felt like we couldn't talk to each other. And then if you didn't say something, that was a sign of this. And if you did say something, it was a sign of that and it became very tribal. And it was a very uncomfortable place to be. Meanwhile, like, you know, we're just trying to make software together. We're trying to work on, on building some products together. And it became extremely heavy and difficult to do that. And it all sort of came to a head there in April.
1: And that hesitation, you know, where you get to that point where you go, oh, I don't know if I should send this or I don't know if I should say this because I don't know how this... The second guessing that constantly starts to happen and it's a downward spiral. How do you think you arrived at that point without making an earlier intervention?
0: I mean, this is, this is actually just human condition, which is you let things get bad and you hope that they get better So you don't have to deal with the reality of them getting worse. It's true in health. Sometimes people don't go to the doctor. They've got this pain in their side. They don't want to do it. They they don't want to know what it is. They hope it goes away. And oftentimes it does. And sometimes it doesn't. You can look at humanity and, you know, global warming and all all these things. We just kind of sort of let it go. look the other way and hope it gets better. And sometimes it does. Oftentimes it does. Sometimes it does not. And I think that we were probably sort of hoping That it would get better. That we were, especially in the U.S., in this very interesting political time where it was as tribal as it's been in forever, and probably not forever, forever, but for modern times. And you kind of go, "Well, could we hold our breath until maybe this passes? You know, maybe this changes. I don't know. But it just—it wasn't getting better. It was getting worse. And we were finding that even small conversations were leading down the wrong path. We couldn't, as a company, even discuss basic things without things getting so heady and so heated and it just it's like the point where you're like i have to go to the doctor now i'm this is this is extreme but like now i'm coughing up blood or something like i have to go and that's sort of where we got so i think you just you hope you don't have to but then at some point you do and that's i think what happened here
1: to use jason's analogy he and david decided they had to urgently see the doctor following a discussion about genocide among Basecamp's members of staff. It was time, Jason and David thought, to make some big and controversial changes.
0: We spent a few days writing back and forth, reviewing, considering, asking other people's opinions. Not everybody's, but a few people's opinions about how, how it was just the right thing to do. Were we saying it the right way? And We had, you know, an internal version, then we had an external version, and we we just had a few different things, and we just tried to figure out what to do. I don't think we anticipated the backlash. I think we knew it would be controversial, but we were comfortable being controversial.
1: Do you remember how you felt when you pressed the button?
0: You know, I felt like, here we go. And I didn't know where we would go, but I felt like, here we go. I, I always feel a certain degree of comfort in making a decision. Like regardless of what the outcome was going to be, the decision had been made. And this is a decision we've been juggling for kind of years, but we weren't close to making it until the last few weeks. And it had been on our mind and we couldn't sleep. You press the button and the decision is made. And there's comfort in that. You don't know what's going to happen next. But I've always been comfortable with not knowing what's going to happen next. What I'm uncomfortable with typically is indecision. It had been indecision and then indecision was over. I do remember feeling that. And then I think the next feeling I had came from outside when it kind of blew up on Twitter and it blew up kind of, as things tend to do on Twitter, a lot of personal attacks on me, on us, on our employees. Mm. It, It was a massive tidal wave of opinion in sort of the worst form, which is Twitter opinion, which is very sharp, a lot of grandstanding, a lot of quick jabs. And when people are anonymous and they can throw jabs, it can be very painful and they don't care because they don't, no one knows who they are and all that stuff. And you start hearing that and you start seeing your own employees be attacked and you're attacked. And I don't really mind being attacked. I sort of have grown that thick skin. But to see other people being attacked who work here was actually pretty shocking and, and, and painful to see. So that was the next feeling. And then it sort of circled internally, but it was mostly the public reaction that was, I would say the biggest surprise initially.
1: Hmm. So you press in, you start to see that it's creating a very heated public reaction very, very fast. It was like a tidal wave, right? By yeah. around lunchtime, it was quick. What was kicking in for you in terms of your instincts? Like, what, what do I do next? Was there comfort there?
0: What was interesting was there's there's these two sides, which is the public was loud, and privately, internally, people were quiet. Hmm. At least they they weren't quiet, but they were loud amongst themselves. But there was a there was a hush on the post. So like there was no comments really on the post, and you could and and like our, we have a couple chat rooms. They sort of died down pretty quickly, and I'm sure there's back channel conversations going on that I'm not privy to that were very heated, but all of a sudden there was a hush. So you could tell something had happened and something wasn't going well in the short term. So it was obvious that this had a bigger impact than we had considered. We knew it was going to be controversial. We weren't surprised by that. I think what we were surprised by was perhaps the shockwaves and the factions that formed perhaps, who was on what side and how sides were being formed and and how to deal with, got a lot of press inquiries very quickly.
1: The controversy also brought to light some serious historic allegations about Basecamp's culture that added fuel to the flames that were already threatening to engulf the entire business.
0: They weren't just inquiries, like curiosities. There was, like, condemnation or there was accusations and, you know, terrible things were being tossed around. You're called the worst thing in the world. And it's like, OK, this is this is now reaching a new level. And then I start to fear, like, um, safety. Uh, Family safety, like, gosh, you know, people are saying this about me and about others, and you know, these are terrible things that are being said, and you're like, my gosh, what about like, my wife and kids, like, are are they going to then hear from their friends that their dad is X, Y, or Z, or this person who works for us is X, Y, or Z, and what about their kids and their family? Like, all that stuff starts circling. You know, like, this is a little bit out of control here, and there's not much you can really do. So one of the things we thought about was like, what do we do? We decided not to step in the fray, like on Twitter, and just let it go. Let it be what it's going to be. And that was a decision that David and I made. Like, we should just not participate in that conversation. It's, there's, no, there's no good way to participate in that conversation. Mm-hmm. So we didn't really do any press, didn't really jump on Twitter, and sort of just let it go and let sort of the storm clear, kind of is what was going through our minds, what we thought was the right thing to do at it at the time. I would say this also, it felt for the first time, for really the first time we had these, these moments, if you have ups and downs and you know, you've got the, the, the dot-com crash in the early 2000s and you've got the, the recession in 2008, you know, you've got things that have happened to a business, but we always felt like we had a pretty good handle on it. I think for, for a few days, maybe, maybe it was a few weeks, certainly for a few first days, we're like, this is an existential crisis. This is a thing that could finally, like, it could end the company. Mm-hmm. That was the first time I'd ever felt anything like that as a business owner, and that was frightening. But we also went into it. David and I have, have long practiced, basically, negative visualization mm-hmm. whenever we make big decisions. Like, what's the worst that could happen? And we had contemplated the worst that could happen here is that the company ends. Like, that could happen, but to actually feel it potentially happening is different than imagining it. You, you do the you do the mental imagining thing for a while um, and then it actually happens and you go, this is, you know, frightening and you, you have a different set of butterflies in your stomach that you've never had before.
1: More from this conversation shortly.
0: So this is from April twenty sixth. This is the public announcement, not the private one, although the private one is, was very similar. At Basecamp, we treat our company as a product. It's not a rigid thing that exists. It's a flexible, malleable idea that evolves. We aren't stuck with what we have and we can create what we want. Just as we improve products through iteration, we iterate on our company too. Recently, we've made some internal company changes, which taken in total, collectively feel like a full version change. It deserves an announcement. In the product world, not all changes are enjoyed by all customers. Some changes are immediately appreciated. Some changes take time to steep, settle in and get acquainted with, and some, Some changes never feel quite right. They may even be deal breakers. The same is true when changing your company, except that customers are the employees. And when you get to a certain count, customers or employees or both, there's no pleasing everyone. You can't. There are too many unique perspectives, experiences and individuals.
1: Let's pause for a moment to think about some of the signals emerging from Jason's memo at this point. Too often, The writer of an email or instant message assumes the reader shares the same perspectives as them, can read their tone and intentions, or is even in a similar emotional state. The sender may hear what they've written as something profound and motivating, assuming the recipients will read it in the same way. In divided times, the wording, tone, and references... All the details that could go over badly with readers, consciously and unconsciously, really, really matter.
0: Now, interestingly enough, I'm looking at this next paragraph here. So I had read this book, uh, The Doors of Perception, and I'd read it again previous to making this decision. As Huxley offers in The Doors of Perception, we live together, act on, and react to one another, but always and in all circumstances, we are by ourselves. The markers go hand in hand into the arena. They are crucified alone. Embraced, the lovers desperately try to fuse their insulated ecstasies into self-transcendence in vain. By its very nature, every embodied spirit is doomed to suffer and enjoy in solitude. Reading back, this is sort of the, like, slightly embarrassed by, like, college poetry stuff. Like, why I put that paragraph in there, it really hit me when I read it. Would I have put it in there again today if I wrote this again? Probably not. I was trying to reiterate the fact that These are individual decisions, and people are gonna make individual decisions after reading this. I just sort of wanted to to reiterate the fact that we understood that. No more lingering or dwelling on past decisions. We've become a bit too precious with decision-making over the last few years, either by wallowing in indecisiveness or worrying ourselves into overthinking things, taking on a defensive posture and assuming the worst outcome is the likely outcome, putting too much energy into something that only needed a quick fix inadvertently derailing projects when casual suggestions are taken as essential imperatives or rehashing decisions in different forums or mediums. It's time to get back to making calls, explaining why once and moving on. So what had happened over the previous few years was that it just seemed like we couldn't make decisions, that there was too many considerations and then we just kept piling on the reasons not to do something. And decisions became really precious and we wanted to get to consensus rather than make the right decision and make sure everyone is comfortable broadly. And it's ultimately just at least not the way I think we should be making decisions. And so I wanted to reiterate that I think this is a reset of that as well, that let's make calls and move on. And if they're the wrong calls, we can make a new call next time that decisions are ultimately temporary. We don't need to think that this decision is forever. And I felt like we started thinking that way and and we slowed down and we began to compromise in ways that weren't really benefiting any of the sides that were part of the conversation. So anyway.
1: So Jason, I'm wondering, reading back through the memo a year later, does it bring up different emotions for you? And can you feel the impact of those words and understand the response they've created?
0: I definitely understand. And I, I understood shortly after, and I probably understood before, but, but sort of still at the time just felt like it was the right thing to do. My job is to make decisions. Ultimately, that's, that's what I have to do. Like I have to make decisions. And so I I would have made the same decisions. Looking back on it a year, like today, almost a year later, I'm glad we did what we did. I think it was the right thing to do for the business. Are there some things I would have done differently? I think we talked a little bit about some of the, maybe, maybe the way we communicated it or perhaps some of the other advice I could have gotten or whatever it was, but I still think it was the right thing for us to do. I absolutely understand why it was so divisive and why people made the decisions they made. And I don't blame anybody for leaving the company who left. I, I don't blame anyone for any personal decisions that they made or they make, I really don't. But I, I think part of my blind spot here is I'm not a sides person. I've never understood in, in American politics, the left or the right. That's just not how I see the world. I, I try to look at everything objectively and and just sort of have unique positions on everything that comes up. It's not, what does this group think? that Therefore I think, because I agree with them on this, I agree with them on that. That's just not how I've ever been. But That's not how most things are, at least in the U.S. these days. So in that environment, I understand why people reacted the way they did, especially on Twitter. People take strong sides very quickly. And with those sides, they layer in all sorts of other assumptions about you that they that they decide are related. So I understand all that. I would say that looking back, I'm not surprised on how it came out. But I I am um, pleased with ultimately how it changed the company.
1: I'm curious, have you received any feedback or advice that has made you rethink the way you'd approach a similar situation in the future?
0: The best counsel actually came after we we published something, which was, here's what you should have done, uh, or here's how you should have said it. But I think that, you know, it's a weird position to be in. There, there's this, this thing I, I've said before and written about before, which is that the CEO is the last to know. Typically, you think that, you know, you own the place, you run the place, you know it all. Well, you know very little. You probably know less than most because the position is is insulated. The Power dynamics are what they are. And it's not often that you get the feedback that people maybe want to share with you because power dynamics is just kind of the way it is. People typically don't share their full and honest opinion. So I'm sure other people had some thoughts that maybe they didn't share or they would have recommended a different way. But after it happened, Actually, put the memo out there. I definitely got some really good feedback from from people, and we had some more internal discussions about it. The thing is, is that I think I think I learned a few things about how to communicate big changes like this, and where to communicate them, and how to. Part of it was timing. Mm-hmm. So some of it was pure. No matter what, it wouldn't have gone well for some. But others said, you know, one of the the big problems they had was that we published this uh, memo publicly. Just shortly after, like, I think within an hour or something like that, or hours after sharing this internally, mm-hmm. and they felt blindsided by the fact that this was this was an internal major internal decision. But now the weight of the world was also, and the eyes of the world were also on it, and it was very difficult for them to to sort of process that while the public was all over it at the same time. And so they felt like this was a personal thing. How come it became a public thing so quickly? So I think that was something that I thought, I, I thought was a really great point. I don't know if it would have mattered in the end, but I thought that was a really great point. The other feedback I got, which was really good, was that you know David and I have this very direct writing style. We write sort of like op-ed style pieces. And if you look at our books and you look at our blog posts, like we, we take a strong opinion and we sort of make our point. We don't say it depends, because we assume reasonable people know it depends, but like this is our point of view.
1: How many of us have experienced in virtual working the importance of tone in communications? Without nonverbal cues and facial expressions, our minds fill in the blanks about the sender's intentions. Is often amplified when there's a power imbalance. In this case, a CEO sending a memo to all his staff, especially when there's already a trust issue in the organization.
0: There are times when that kind of writing when paired with a significant cultural decision was probably not the right style it was a bit i'd heard from a few employees who stayed you know that it was it it felt punitive it felt like we were punishing there was a lot of no more this and no more that and we won't do this and we won't And. It was probably just the not, not the right way to put it. And I think I learned something about, about that as well. You know, there's no way to A-B test this stuff, ultimately. You never really know how it's going to turn out. And uh, it turned out as it turned out. You know, we took full responsibility for it, and here we are.
1: There are occasions when trust is so deeply damaged that you'll never feel a sense of safety or belonging ever again, which is why so many Basecamp employees took the decision to walk away from the company. But for Jason and David to repair trust with those who stayed, there had to be a deep acceptance that the trust that would form again over time would be different from what had existed before.
0: So I remember the first few weeks after everything kind of went down, my timing's a little bit off, but I think it was the first few weeks, maybe the first few months, we began to communicate regularly with everybody. I think it was like Daily or or weekly, you know, we, we just we began to to communicate more about what we were thinking and how we were feeling and what we were planning on doing and some of the changes we were beginning and willing to make. and we just sort of began to talk more. But it was a lot more about here's what we're doing now because of this. And here's how we're addressing this because of that. David and I reached out personally to every employee who stayed and had a personal conversation with everybody and listened and and got a lot of really good advice. And part of that was communicating regularly, like what we were thinking, because the silence at that point was very scary for people because they didn't know what was happening. Like, is the company going to be OK? You know, like basic. Will I have a job in two weeks? You know, that kind of stuff. Like, can we survive? Mm. You know, and the answer was yes, we can. And here we are. Good news. Like business is actually fine. And so reassuring people that things were OK and reassuring them they made the right decision. So there's a lot of that. Going on early on in personal conversations. And there was, there was crying, there was, you know, tears, there was a sense of, you know, we'd been through something terrible. There was a feeling of losing friendships and losing tight relationships. And that was that's hard to do too. There's a lot of hard in the moment, you know? Mm-hmm. So we found the kinds of things that that we could do together to to repair.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so that was one of the other big rallying points for us: was that look, we've been through hell here for a moment. Our customers should not be experiencing any of this. Sure. So let's make sure that our servers are are solid and our infrastructure is solid and our customer service is solid. And let's make sure we rally around them right now, even though we're all hurting internally, let's take care of them.
1: Beyond the company itself, and pride might be a funny word to use here, but the memo, it was a catalyst for a much wider discussion on the boundaries between work, culture and personal beliefs that was bubbling and was waiting for something like your memo to trigger it off. Is there something beyond your company that you're proud of, that you've seen a change, a discussion happening that was a result of the memo?
0: I think it provided an opportunity for other companies to confront this for the ones that are challenged by it. But I think it was a moment in time where a lot of people and I heard from probably hundreds, if not thousands of people via email uh, and text for them to either say like, hey, you know, we've been thinking about how to deal with this at our company for a long time. It's the number one challenge we have. I don't know if we're going to do it the way you did it, but now we have to confront it. So I think it created a moment for companies to begin to make decisions about considering how to handle this, because it's, it's, it is a thing in a lot of places, but at least it was sort of on the map now again as a, as a thing that's, that's possible. I think that was the other thing that, that I'm not gonna say proud, but we've always tried to be a company that exercises our independence. We've been working remotely for many years, which people thought was a crazy thing to do and you could never do it. We did four-day w- work days. We still do four-day work days in the summer. We've been doing that for over a decade. People thought that was a crazy thing to do. And this is another thing that we did that we wanted to do differently. And if anything, it simply provides an example. These are, these are I think, ultimately healthy questions to ponder, regardless of what position you're in at the moment.
1: Is there something about the moment that you haven't said, that you've always wanted to say?
0: I don't. I don't know. That's a really, really good question, by the way. I, I don't know. Mostly because I've moved on. Ultimately, looking back, I'm surprised by how it really changed the company. Although that sounds like so obvious, but I'm surprised by how it reignited our ambition. Actually, that was not an outcome I ever would have imagined. Actually, had I written down a list of things like controversy, yes, I I suspected some people probably would not want to stick around. I. Figured that could happen. I could imagine that. I could imagine some of the hate and the Twitter stuff. Like I could imagine some of those things. I could imagine having to to hire new people. I could imagine there being some uh, significant degree of hurt. I could imagine all those things. I did not imagine that we'd become a more ambitious company, that we would reconsider some of our fundamental assumptions about who we are as a business. Historically, we've always tried to stay as small as we possibly could. Now we've torn that bandaid off and we're saying, let's get as big as we can within still reason. Like we're not going out to raise a bunch of money. We're not doing that world, but let's take the governor off and what could we do with a hundred people? What could we do with 120 people? What if we doubled the size of the company from where we were before? So we're not talking about getting to a thousand people, but what if we had a hundred, 120, like what could we do if we were a more capable company? And becoming a more capable company was not even something we were discussing before.
1: There's often an untold narrative around a trust crisis in big businesses and organisations. After sheer panic, there is pain and real grief, which can over time give way to repair and renewal.
0: Repair is, is is the key word. You have to decide who you're going to repair with, though. We're not going to repair the thousands of people on Twitter who call us X, Y and Z. Like, that's just not going to happen. We're not going to change the narrative publicly for people who, who hate us now. I can't do anything about that, but I, I can do things about the people we really care about, or the people we work with every day, and, and we'll do our best. And I, and I do hope in time to also repair relationships with people who left. Mm. Like I said, I understand why people would leave, and many of the people who did leave, I, I've known for many, many years, and we've done wonderful work together, and I really respect them as, as human beings. And I hope that one day we can talk again, and and uh, and repair those relationships. I'm certain in many cases we wouldn't work together again, but maybe we could laugh together again or talk together again. Like that would be really meaningful, but I'm sure a lot more time has to go by for that to happen. So mm. we'll, we'll hopefully get there at some point.
1: Very last question. I know that you don't like timeframe, so I won't impose my time frame. but Jason, what would you say has been your rethink moment through this experience?
0: For the first time, for me, I questioned if I wanted to do this again, if I wanted to run this business anymore. That was the first time I'd ever had that feeling in 20 some odd years. I might always imagine this being something I'd always do. I mean, probably not until my 70s or something like that, but like this is my life's work. And I think for the first time in this experience, I began to question whether or not I was fit to do this, if I was the right person to continue to do this, how long I might want to do this. And those are new thoughts that remain in my head, even to this day. I'm really thrilled with what we're doing. And we have a couple more things we're really excited about doing in the short term, in the long term. But for the first time, it made me think like, do I want to do this? And this meaning, do I want to be responsible for an organization? Do I want to be responsible for 60, 70, 80, 100 people? Like, that's a new thing in my head that I'm rethinking. So I think that was the moment um, where that happened uh, for the first time. So again, not something I anticipated, but it stuck with me and something I'm I'm still noodling on long-term, not short-term I'm here, but long-term it's, I, I don't see the inevitability anymore of just doing this forever. So that's new. So I would say that's my moment.
1: If you enjoyed this episode with Jason, please do subscribe to Rethink Moments and leave us a review. It helps other listeners find the show. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, I'm Rachel Botsman, and here you can join the Rethink Moments newsletter. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Rachel Botsman. And if you have any questions or ideas to share on an email, then please do get in touch. And that's rachel at rethinkmoments.com. I'll speak to you soon for another episode of Rethink Moments. The show is developed and written by me, Rachel Botsman, with Will Hain and Alex Sansom. Our Rethink Moments team includes our wonderful producers, Kat Davy and Carenza Metric, and feebly Adler Ryan, our researcher. Editing, mixing, and additional scripting is by our friends at Rethink Audio, Matt Hill and Anushka Tate. Sound engineering by Nit Morbath at Evolution Studios, and our original theme music is composed by Ben Sansom. And thanks to Jesse Hempel and the team at LinkedIn for all their support.